At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series called The Lord of the Church. This is a series as we're walking through Revelation chapters 1 through 3, seeing a revelation of Jesus Christ, specifically that Jesus is the Lord of his church. That began with this incredible, glorious vision of Jesus that John the Apostle sees, but then it follows with Jesus penning letters to seven individual churches. Last week, we looked at the letter to the first of those churches, a letter that was sent to the church in Ephesus, and today we're going to look at the second letter that Jesus pens, and that is the letter to the church in Smyrna, a place just up the road from Ephesus. And so we're going to see that today as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. But before we do that, I want to just orient us to the topic that Jesus will address inside of this church. It's a topic that we don't necessarily talk about very much, but is important for us to consider. It's the topic of the martyrs, martyrs of the faith. Now, what does it mean to be a martyr? To be a martyr means to give a witness, but ultimately to give a witness of Jesus Christ with our lives, dying because of our faith in him. Now, when we think about this, we might think, well, that's not very common. At least it's not very common today. But the reality is, this is something that is being experienced by a number of different Christian communities in the world today. Uh, conservative estimates would say that right now, between five and 10,000 believers are killed for their faith in Christ every year. That's not a historical figure. <clears throat> That's a number right now. Uh, the predominant location where that is taking place right now is on the continent of Africa. But this is something that's happened. Just a a few weeks ago, there was someone in my office who was serving in in Africa, and they were telling the story of one of their church members that was killed by a gunshot in the midst of their time of worship because of their faith in Christ. And so this is a, a very real reality in the church today. Not only is it a reality in the church today, but also this is a reality that has been experienced by the church since Jesus ascended into heaven. There have been roughly 70 million martyrs that have given their lives for Christ since Jesus ascended into heaven in the first century. So this is not a a, just a small thing. Uh, Roughly on average, 30-some thousand martyrs a year, 15 million in Russia, a million in China, a million in Nazi Germany as well as a number of other locations around the globe. So this is something of significance as it relates to the church. But I don't want us to get lost just in the numbers. I want us to also think about the experience of some of the individuals. And so one individual who gave her life as a martyr for the faith was a woman by the name of Blandina of Lyon in 177 A.D., She was a believer in Christ. She was arrested because of that belief, and she was tortured with the eye towards getting her to recant of her faith. She never did until she was eventually thrown to wild beasts for the sport of the crowd. Eusebius, a historian of the time, made this comment. He said that the heathens themselves confessed that never before among them had a woman suffered for so much and for so long. 
But then he continued to say that even as she was thrown to the beast, she was glad at her departure as though invited to a marriage feast rather than cast to the beasts. And so with this reality that is facing the church historical and this reality facing the church even today, I want to just ask the question, how is it that someone could face such an event with such fortitude and walk forward with such courage and faith? Well, friends, we find out by looking at a letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna, a letter that we see in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, a church that was persecuted. Jesus writes to them to encourage them. And in that letter, we find how you and I might be encouraged as well. Now, what's interesting is, last week we saw a letter to the church in Ephesus, a letter to a church that was doing many things right, but he also had some a critique for them, that they would go back to the love that they had at first. But to the church in Smyrna, we find no critique. We find only encouragement. And so let's read these words of this letter, and then we'll back up and make a few observations that will help us know how we might be able to have a faith that would endure even persecution like that. The letter to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2. Jesus writes and says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this, The words of of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, friends, in these verses, I want us to see just two very important things today. The first thing I want us to see is that this is a letter to the persecuted church. This is a letter to a church that is experiencing persecution There may be some among us who have experienced some persecution because of your faith in Christ, but if you haven't, know that you are in the minority. When we think of the number of believers in the world today and even the number of believers that have walked with Christ since the time of his earthly ministry, the normal experience is to experience some opposition. And so Jesus writes to a church that is persecuted, and and what does he say? Well, First of all, he knows of their persecution. I love that. Jesus notices it. He doesn't take it for granted. He doesn't try to minimize it. He sees them in the midst of their suffering. Here it says he he sees their tribulation. This word tribulation is a word that literally means pressure. He understands the pressure that they are under. He understands the distress that they are going through. He understands the opposition that they are facing because they are connected to him. Well, what was that opposition? Well, it was leading to their poverty. It was leading to their poverty. Now, how could your relationship with Jesus lead to your poverty? Well, it didn't have to do just with how much they were putting in the offering basket. In this context, what 
he's referring to is the fact that because they were connected to him, they were getting shut out of good jobs. They were getting shut out of participation in in different kinds of of workmen guilds or, or unions, we might say. So that workers that previously had jobs no longer had jobs because of their connection to Jesus Christ. And that had led to their poverty. The word here for poverty is the word for abject poverty. Similar to the family that Kevin was sharing about in Brazil today, these were a people that were struggling materially in significant ways. Well, they were experiencing this pressure. It was leading to their poverty, but but also it included them being slandered. Lies were being told about them. Now, what kind of lies were being told about Christians in the first century? Well, there were a number of lies that were being told about them. One of the lies being told about Christians is that they were practicing incest. Now, why would they say that? Because believers in Christ believe we have a heavenly father and they would refer to people in their congregation as brothers and sisters. So outsiders were twisting that and saying that they were incestuous in some way. They would say that they were cannibals. Why would they say that? Because as a part of their worship, they would break bread and drink wine and do it in remembrance of the body and the blood of Christ. And so they were accused of being cannibals. They were accused of being atheists. Why were they being accused of being atheists? Because they didn't recognize Caesar as God. And so they were poor, but they were also being slandered. Things were being twisted. Untruths were being shared about them. Their reputation was being sullied. And who was behind all of this? Well, apparently it was the Jews in the city of Smyrna. Now, here's something that you need to know about the Roman Empire at this time. The Romans had acknowledged the Jewish religion, and they gave Jews a special exemption from certain things like worshiping Caesar as God. They just knew they weren't going to get anywhere with the Jews, and so they gave them an exemption from that kind of worship. Now, that exemption that was granted to the Jews for a time was also conveyed to the Christians because the Christians were seen as a subset of the Jews because Jesus himself was of Jewish background. It had been birthed out of the nation of Israel. And so there was a time where the Christians received the same kinds of protections from the Romans that the Jews had. But the Jewish people eventually began to turn. And in Smyrna, apparently, the Jewish people were looking to the Christians and they were telling the Romans, they are not one of us. Therefore, they should not have the protections given to us. And then they would tell these lies about them. It would lead to the loss of their jobs and ultimately to things even worse than that. Now, not only were the Jews behind this, but also there were bigger forces at play. The Jews may have been the human agents who were spreading these lies, but ultimately those lies came from the liar himself, from Satan, from the devil. You see, the battle was not just against flesh and blood, but it was against principalities and spiritual forces. And so Jesus writes to this church and he lets them know, look, friends, I know that you're experiencing slander. I know that you're experiencing poverty. And I know the Jews are spreading these lies about you, but you got to know it is going from even worse than that. It's coming all the way from Satan. Jesus takes notice of what is happening to this congregation. But not only that, but it was leading, as we mentioned, to their poverty 
But ultimately, it would lead to a number of them being imprisoned. And finally, it was going to lead to many of their deaths or martyrdom for their faith. This is the church that Jesus is writing to. This is what they are experiencing. And Jesus says, I I see what you are going through. And then he tells them that all of this will be going on for a period of about 10 days. Now, what do we mean by 10 days here? Different biblical scholars have taken this in different ways. I don't think there's any reason for us not to believe that this is referring to a a literal 10-day period where there was going to be a rounding up and persecution of Christians in the city of Smyrna. But I also think that the length of time, the specific length of time, is not as big of a point as the fact that 10 days is not all that long, right? So Jesus wants them to know that their experience of persecution that would lead to imprisonment, death, and their poverty had a shelf life. It would not go on forever, but they were certainly experiencing it at that time. Now, this experience that they were going through and the threat of being martyred was not just something that was happening uh, in this one place, but it's something that had been a part of the history of the church from the beginning. Remember, it was Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons in the church, who gave his life as a testimony for Christ in Acts chapter 7. And remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. All of the other apostles, save John, had already given their life because of their testimony of Christ. So this was a normal part of the experience of talking about what it meant to follow Christ. The leaders of the church, many of them had already given their lives because of their faith in him. And this is something that would continue on even after this, including the martyrdom of a man by the name of Polycarp, who was the bishop of the city of Smyrna, a disciple of John the Apostle, who would be martyred for his faith in 155 AD. We know this because the members of the church at Smyrna wrote down what happened to Polycarp, and they kept it in a, in a book that we can still read today that details the history of what happened to him in that city. One of the things that they, that happened was that the Roman magistrate there in Smyrna really didn't want to kill this old man, Polycarp. And so he tried to give him a chance to recant before he took him out to burn him at the stake. But this was Polycarp's response. He said, 86 years I have served him, Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king now who has saved me? And so, friends, we see the persecution that was going on in the city of Smyrna. And we see the persecution that was going on in the history of the church. And we're reminded that the persecution of the church is not limited to one time or one place, but it's something that is happening right now in our world today. And something that we might be experiencing small effects of now, but those effects might increase at some time in the future. And so as we gather today as followers of Christ, how do we have a resilient faith in the face of this kind of persecution, persecution that might lead to job problems or health problems or life problems in some way? Is there any encouragement given to them other than a detailing of what they were going through? Well, friends, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Inside of this letter, Jesus doesn't just identify that he knows what they're going through, but he also goes out of his way to encourage them in very specific ways ways. He shares with them some perspectives to encourage them in the midst of their persecution. 
And these are perspectives, friends, that you and I need to know and commit to memory. This is a passage of scripture we should turn to often if we are experiencing any opposition for our faith in Christ. Jesus wrote this letter and he said, let he who has ears hear what the spirit says to the churches because he wants you and I to be encouraged by these words. If we are experiencing opposition for our faith in Christ. So what is it? What is it? Well, the first perspective that he shares to encourage them in the midst of their persecution was the perspective of eternity. Now, friends, again, when Jesus writes these letters to the churches, he doesn't sign them as Jesus. He signs them by highlighting almost a caricature of one of the aspects of his identity to remind them of who he was, not just of his name, but who he was and what he would do. And so he signs this letter as the words of the first and the last. Jesus said, at the time that you know of as the beginning, I was already there. The time that you know of as the end, guess what? I already see it. Jesus says, there has never been a time that I have not been. This is the idea that we saw in chapter 1 of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the eternal one. His timeline is so much greater than ours. Our timeline is short. I remember when I was a, a student at the University of Oklahoma, I thought that two years sounded like an eternity. Now, as a 48-year-old man... Two years sounds short, but 10 years sounds long. There are others in the room that might say 10 years sounds short, 20 years sounds long. Our perspective of time is so different. Imagine what God's perspective is on that. Compared to an eternal God, what's a couple of years? It's no comparison. Jesus encourages them with the perspective of eternity. We see this also in the reference to the 10 days. Jesus said, you're going to experience persecution, but it's going to be for 10 days. And I mentioned earlier, I think that this really was a, a literal 10-day period for the church in Smyrna. But I think the application goes way bigger than that for us. Let's just think for a moment about the different periods of time that are referenced inside of Revelation. Some of these periods of time we haven't talked about yet, but we will over the course of this year. But it's important for us to see. Jesus here talks about 10 days of persecution. In chapter 20, there's going to be talk of a thousand years of Christ reigning upon the earth with Satan bound. And then there's going to be talk in chapters 21 and 22 about an eternal state with a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin or suffering or tears. Friends, the 10 days here is a reminder to give us a perspective clue. The difficulties we suffer in this life are but for a short time compared to everything that lies in front of us. If we are going through a hard time, whether it is because of our persecution, because of our faith in Christ, or whether it is because of something else that is negatively impacting us, we need to remember that it is but for a short time that we go through this compared to what lies ahead. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but what did Paul call a light and a momentary affliction? Something that you and I would write at least one blog post about. 
Facebook would be filled of our griping about what he was going through. But he called it light and momentary. Why? Because it was easy? No, because it was small compared to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, if we are going through something difficult, we need to be encouraged with an eternal perspective. The challenges of today are short compared to the blessing and the duration of that blessing that God has for us. Second perspective is the perspective of true riches. The perspective of true riches. I love what he says. He says, I know your tribulation. I know of your poverty. I I know that you're broke, but Jesus reminds them, but you're rich. Now, in what way were they rich? I mean, that's, that's almost humorous if we think of it just in terms of possessions. They had abject poverty. They did not have enough money to get the health care they needed. They did not have enough money to get the food they needed. They did not have enough money to pay for the dwellings where they were living. But Jesus calls them rich. Now, is that just silly or is there something to that? Friends, there, there is something to it. Just think of some of the other passages that we see in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There is a, a richness that Jesus has for us. And friends, it's not in our physical possessions right now. There, there's, a, there's a twisted version of Christianity that says, if you believe Jesus, you're going to have a lot of stuff. That's a misunderstanding of this passage. Let's keep going so we understand it more. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. See, if we know Christ, we can have nothing physically and yet have everything, Paul says. Well, in what way could we be called rich? In what way could we possess everything even if we have Nothing. Well, Paul explains this idea a little more in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are rich, friends, in spiritual blessings. We're rich in that we have forgiveness of our sins. We're rich in that we have a hope for eternity. We're rich in that we have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can communicate with him in prayer. We're we're, we're rich in where we're headed in all eternity. We're rich in the community that God has placed around us inside the church. We're rich in so many ways. In comparison to those riches, it really doesn't matter if your kitchen is updated. It really doesn't matter where you're going on vacation compared to those riches. See, we we count rich and poor based on the stuff of our lives. Jesus reminds us that the stuff of our lives, we we can enjoy it. It's, It's wonderful when we have those blessings, but it's not what it's all about. It's not where true riches are found. True riches are found in the spiritual blessings that are available to all who have professed faith in Christ. And so, One of the perspectives we need to remember is the perspective of eternity. Another perspective we need to remember is the perspective of true riches. But there's a third perspective that we need to see here, and that is the perspective of the resurrection. Friends, never forget this. To the church that is persecuted, 
How does Jesus sign the letter? He signs it as the one who died and who came to life again. Is that awesome? To those who are getting ready to give their lives for their faith, Jesus said, guess what? So did I. And I was resurrected. And I have made a way for you to be resurrected as well. Jesus said that this crown of life, of eternal life, is available to those who are in Christ. Remember, the ones who conquer, those are the ones who are believers. We saw this last Sunday in the letter to the Ephesians. So to those who are believing in Christ, though we may have a first death, our, our, our lives will end one day. Something will overtake us, whether it be cancer or a virus or simply old age or violence or persecution and martyrdom. Though our lives will end one day, we will experience a first death. If we are in Christ, there will not be a second death for us. What Jesus is saying is, though we die, we will be resurrected to new life if we are in him. Friends, when we try to anchor all of what it means to follow Christ to be merely on this side of the grave, our timeline is simply too short. There are people who will have chronic illness that they will deal with every day of this life. And we might say, well, where is God that they would have to deal with this physical illness every day of this life? We need to remember that our perspective is just too short. That one, if they know Christ, though they suffer today with a prolonged illness, they will not suffer with that prolonged illness forever. Though they may suffer today with depression, they will not suffer with depression in eternity. Though today they may suffer and even die for their faith in Christ, they will not die again if they know him. His resurrection is a gift that he gives to us to give us life after death. For so many times we live our lives terrified of death. It's the one riddle we cannot seem to solve, but Jesus solved it. And though we may die here, we will live there. If you are looking for the answer to those things, then trust in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we have faith in Christ, it might lead to our persecution. But our perspective is too short. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he can make good on every promise that he has given to us. Now, couple of applications in light of all of this. First application is that we are not to fear even when there are things to be afraid of. There were things to be afraid of in Smyrna, right? They were going to be imprisoned. They were going to be killed. There were things to be afraid of. And yet Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Why? Because he was resurrected and he made a way for them. I want to read a very long quote. I don't think I've ever read a quote this long, but I was so moved by this whole section of a commentary by a man by the name of Jim Hamilton that I want to read this long quote to you and just let these thoughts drive home their application. 
He says, when you think about the end of your life, do you apply to your contemplation the fact that Jesus has conquered death? When you think about dangerous situations you might face, the noise in the night that means an intruder might be in your home, the thought that someone you love could fall into a rushing river or be in some other situation that if you try to help might end your own life. When you think of life-threatening danger, do you apply to your thinking the triumph of Jesus over death? My friends, this is what it means to make connections between the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen in all of life. Applying to our fears the knowledge that Jesus is bigger than death will make us courageous. Now, courage is a great thing, but it is not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to live in ways that show our confidence in Jesus. When we are courageous because we know that Jesus is bigger than death, we honor Jesus. And when we put ourselves in harm's way in order to protect others or even to save their lives because we love Jesus and know that he is in control and trust him to take care of us, even if we die, we're following Jesus. Friends, do not fear, even when there are things to be afraid of, because Jesus has conquered death. Second application, pre-decide to be faithful unto death. Jesus says to them, decide, be, be faithful unto death. It will be a test. It will be a revelation of your true faith in me. Decide now that no matter what, you will follow Christ and obey him. Before the persecution begins. I love again what Hamilton says. He says, Jesus is worthy of dying for. And if he's worth dying for, then he is worth living for. Amen? And so Jesus writes to the persecuted church. And he gives them this encouragement. He says, I have risen from the dead. So stick with me. It's going to be okay. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just the opportunity to trust you and to look at this passage and be encouraged by you today. Lord, I pray for any who are experiencing difficulty, any who are experiencing fear and doubt today, that they might be encouraged with the knowledge of the resurrection and that they might follow you in faith. We thank you for your resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 